My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? In the first of two special election-related episodes this week, I talk with Vivek Chibber. You may already be familiar with Chibber's popular pamphlets called The ABCs of Capitalism. In this episode, I asked him to expand on one of these, Capitalism and Class Struggle, taking the why of class struggle as a given, but venturing into questions of who where, and how. We also discuss the stakes in the upcoming election. Chibber offers a stone-cold analysis of the trends within, as well as the differences between the two parties. And finally, we talk about Chibber's forthcoming book on the cultural turn in Marxism, uh, in particular, the idea of whiteness. Vivek Chibber is professor of sociology at New York University and editor of Catalyst, which is published by Jacobin. He is the author of several books, including Two Due Next Fall, uh, which we discuss here. Um, I thought we could sort of uh, extend it to to say that, um, you know, to, to ask you sort of where your current thinking is on how we go from identifying the working class as the key agent of change to then actually uh, considering the specific forms of uh, organization, which could also involve thinking about who the working class are. Uh, but, you know, taking as a starting point that back when, you know, we had uh, workers in, in factories, uh, so you could point to them physically, um, how, how would you extend your own your own piece now? Right. Um, well, you asked two uh, related questions, Sanjeev. One was, um, how would one operationalize a strategy that centers in the working class in today's world, given that it's a significantly different occupational structure than we had in the halcyon days of the left, the 1920s and 30s, the interwar period? Yeah. The second is, how do you who, I, who, who would you identify as the working class? Which, which cl sectors of the class does one organize, right? Yeah. I think it's better if we start with the second question first. Okay. It, and that is, who do you target? And then second, how do you organize them, right? The, the, so the, the, it, it's, I think analytically, it'd be better to go in sure. that order. Um, I, it seems to me that you organize workers wherever and whenever you can. And there are a couple of reasons to do that. One is you're giving them a kind of kind of a social justice, a moral reason. You're giving them some sort of countervailing power to the power of their employers. And so whether they're school teachers or fast food workers or blue collar workers, um, public sector workers, wherever there is an impetus to organize them, you do it so that it gives them some means of gaining control over their lives. It also helps in changing the general culture in that it, it gives, first of all, people who work for a living, it gives them a sense that since others have done it, I might also be able to do it. 
So it gives them a greater confidence in their own ability to organize if they see others organizing. Um, secondly, it generates a, a shift in public culture whereby um, working people aren't stigmatized and hated quite as much as they are right now. And you, the culture starts to respect labor and laboring activities because being in an organization gives you dignity and that dignity is transferred to the larger culture as well. Hmm. So first, one just ha you know one should support organizing efforts wherever they are, even in places like universities, where you know generally, <laughs> I don't, I don't lose a lot of sleep over uh, professors and grad students being organized. Um, but that said, uh, there there are distinctions that one can make with regard to the power that organizing gives you, and I think that. The key sectors in terms of gaining political and social leverage over the economy and over the, um, the corporate community are the sectors that actually generate um, profits and generate a surplus. Hmm. Now, one doesn't have to go into value theory, labor theory of value to figure that out. Um, th there are sectors of the economy that produce um, profits for the private sector. And then there are sectors of the economy that where workers come to work, but which are relying on a redistribution, or a, I should say a distribution of revenues coming out of profits through taxation or something like that. So, you know, take school teachers. It's very important to get them organized. It's very important to give them a voice in how schools are run and to start organize a pushback against um, the attack on unions. They don't have, however, the kind of leverage that transportation workers would have, or that Amazon workers would have, or that even now auto or the airline industry, workers in those industries would have. Mm. Because those are key sectors in the economy. That's where the dynamism of the economy comes from. And that's where the profits come from, out of which the public schools are financed. So in, with regard to a vision towards social justice, you organize everyone. Strategically though, I do think some parts of the working class are going to give you more of an advantage as a political movement and a political actor than other parts. We're not at the point yet where we can actually start having those debates because right now, you know, we're beggars at the table. Any place socialists see any sign of activity and movement, they should go there and try to do the best they can organizing them as long as it's actual workers and not, you know, make-believe workers. Um, hmm. There will come a point though when you have, you hopefully are in a position of making making choices about where how to marshal your your resources, where to go with them, then these debates will become, I think, more germane. Um, but you know, in our in terms of our thinking, in terms of our strategizing, we should at least be aware that there some sectors are more strategically located than other sectors. Now, how do we do that? Was your first question, right? I mean, yeah. it's no longer the same class, and you know, quite honestly. If we figured that out, we, you and I wouldn't be having that conversation, <laughs> having this conversation. Um, it, there's, certain, there's a certain level of generality at which nothing has changed. There, there's still workers working, working, any productive establishment that's a bona fide capitalist establishment means it'll have to be a certain minimum size. That means it's going to have so, you know, at least several people working there who co cooperate and who are needed to generate profits. That was true 100 years ago. It's true today. Hmm. 
there are still the modal size of the firm, the establishment has gone down. But um, there, what you know, modal sizes are a deceptive category. Question is, are there still? There were American working class never organized across every establishment, across every sector. Even at its peak, it never reached. It just reached slightly more than one third of the labor force. It was concentrated overwhelmingly in certain sectors, the auto industry and its um, its linkages, various linkages in the rubber and the steel. Yeah. And coal mines, places like that. So the question for today is, fine, we know that a very significant proportion of productive establishments are now smaller. They're, they've downsized, they've outsourced, there are layers of intermediaries, which makes them a lot harder to organize. The key question is, are there, however, sectors where something recognizably successful could still be carried out along the lines of old style organizing. You know, I'd say, yeah, probably. And I think what Kim Moody has written on this probably is right, that certainly logistics gives you a window into a sector of the working class where, from what I can tell, traditional methods of organizing still work, hmm. whether it's in warehouses, whether it's in transportation or something like that. At, at least there we can draw on lessons from what we learned in the past. And we don't have to worry that something entirely new is gonna to have to be invented for it to work. Now, beyond that, in the newer sectors, in the rapidly transforming sorts of work, I don't know. And truth is nobody knows. Anybody who pretends to know is lying. We're gonna figure that out by stumbling onto it. And if the left is lucky, It'll be in a position where once new organizational practices are discovered, the left will have enough of a presence and enough openness and enough interest in the working class that it will rapidly then uh, build on those efforts. Hmm. But my, you know, it's not my sense. It's just an obvious fact that we haven't cracked that code yet. And that's why we're floundering as much as we are trying to figure out how to do it. Finally, we're getting to the point where socialists, at least there's a current on the left among socialists that's not embarrassed about prioritizing class politics. That's a step forward. It's by no means the, the dominant trend within the self-styled socialist left. I mean, the people I know in the DSA tell me that they really have to try to make a case for class as an organizing principle, which is just it's such an embarrassment that this is where the political culture is, but it just shows you where it's located, what class it's located in. We are slowly winning that fight. If, if it continues to gain traction, then we'll be in a position to um, actually build on the few successes as they come around. I, I, right now, I'm not by any means optimistic that the left as currently constituted will even be that interested in having these discussions. But it's a step we're moving towards that. I think that's a good thing. Hmm. So that's my answer to your question. I think that A, we organize wherever we can. B, don't be afraid of making distinctions when you have the resources that you're actually debating where to deploy those resources. Hmm. Um, and C, uh, the how to organize will obviously require some um, 
strategic innovations, but I don't think by any means we have to invent something new from whole cloth because to capitalism is still capitalism. And the workplace still has enough semblance, enough resemblance rather to the workplaces of the left's victorious era that if we study them closely and we try to learn from those past experiences and we uh, bring in enough people inside the left that have experience organizing along those lines, then uh, we can have a place to build from. Hmm. Hmm. Um, uh, wow, there's, there's a lot there. So, um, uh, you know, maybe we can get into at least some of it in a little more detail. So, so um, one thing I'll say is that I'm actually more optimistic as, you know, uh, as a member of DSA. I think my sense is it's not that it's the, the struggles are more about how to uh, sort of figure class out along with, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, race, patriarchy, and so on, not that it's not important. And, and you know, there's definitely a lot of friction there. Um, uh, but, but at least in my, uh, you know, I would say active adult political life in the U.S., um, it's definitely the first time that I've seen a large organization. I mean, you know, I'm not talking about small groups, but a large organization which is, um, uh, you know, like in these socialist night schools, typically the first topic is, you know, uh, is, you know, why the working class. Um, uh, That's really a good sign. That's a a huge step forward. Um, Let me ask you about a couple of things, the other things you said. So first of all, I, you know, I I agree that, uh, you know, so we think back to uh, the socialists in the 19th century and and Marx identifying unions. Um, uh, It's not that they hit upon them, it's that strikes were already happening and there were already effective unions and then you know then we were able to say okay that's where the action is um uh and so i think what you're saying is that that we're sort of we're in the same role now when things happen we need to be prepared to comprehend them and act you know uh in the moment uh as they arise um uh, I, I, you know, one group you did not mention was uh, was tech workers, which is sometimes the other uh, set of occupations that comes up in these conversations. Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically about that. Um, and also, uh, you know, teachers, so as we are discovering during the pandemic, uh, you know, the role of teachers as implicitly childcare providers is also part of the, so, you know, you suddenly have schools closed um, is a huge hit from the point of view of that kind of labor, which I know there's a whole like, you know, what, whether that's quote unquote productive labor or, or not. Um, uh, but, but is there some actual st- strategic sort of weight there as, you know, teachers, as you take them out uh, and suddenly you have a lot of working parents left without, without childcare. That that yeah. is sort of a, uh, you know, is that a source of power? Yeah, yeah, definitely indirectly, right? It's, there's a layer of mediation between them and um, profit making, but um, precisely because they are, <laughs> they are the uh, America's way of providing free childcare yeah. to the working class. Um, if if teachers don't show up, then the kids stay at home and parents have to figure out how to take care of them and then they can't go to work. So that's kind of a, a implicit sympathy strike, <laughs> <from> the, <laughs> you could say, from the 
part of the parents. Absolutely. Um, you know, but like I said, right now, you know, Sanjeev, for us, for the left, you're not in a position of, it, it's good to have these argue, these, these discussions around where is the leverage, where is the power. At this moment, though, it's a luxury. Mm. Right now, if you can get to people who are workers, whether they're highly skilled workers like teachers or whether they're less skilled like in the um, warehouses, wherever there's energy, you go there and you organize them because the biggest problem on the left right now is that it's so, so isolated from the working class and it's so demoralized when it comes to this sort of organizing, both to be embedded and located within the class once again and to have the confidence that this is a politics that's a viable politics is really the, the order of the day right now. Um, hmm. We should continue to have those discussions, of course. But if, if some place, if, if, if you know, precarious workers suddenly start organizing themselves, and you know, those are the sections of the class that have very little leverage and social power, you still go there because that's how weak we are right now. Um, all right, uh, that's a great lead into the uh, the next uh, question, which um, uh, I'm actually going to switch around the order I sent you just a uh, just a little bit. Um, uh, you know, so thinking about where we are right now in the in the U.S. and how um, uh, yeah, you know how how weak the left is in in some ways. Um, how how should we characterize the differences between the the two parties um, and you know they're both capitalist parties um, so with respect to this issue of working class uh, organizing and solidarity um, is there space there and you know especially you know of course now we're talking about Trump uh, and Biden um, but but yeah how would you characterize the significant differences if 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 there are uh, with respect to working class organizing you mean um the, uh, there are two potential interpretations of your question Sanjeev. one yeah. is how does one how does one understand the trump phenomenon and its uh relationship to the political alignments right now and the second is how does one understand the republicans and the democrats and the their relation, because the reason I'm saying that's a different question, it wouldn't normally be, but it's because Trump is not a garden variety Republican. Hmm. So it, one would have to make that distinction to answer the question properly. So let's let's start with that. So so why is is Trump not a garden variety Republican? Like what what is unique? I mean, the one clear indication is that when he came to power, most of the party, his party, did its very best to stop him. And in the last three months, the party has systematically once again turned against him mm. in, a, in a way that one hasn't seen before. Um, the, Trump is, it, it's, it's, it's not easy to say yet whether the Trump phenomenon is going to be a blip inside the Republican Party or whether it's, it, it's a picture of the future. And what makes it hard to decipher is that I think the party right now is in, in flux in a way that the Democrats are not. Its social base is changing a great deal and has been changing, I would say for eight or 10 years, perhaps longer. 
And that has brought about changes in the intra-party political alignments and the debates. And the major change that's occurred is the Republican Party, which was and continues to be in many ways the favored party of capital, is now burdened with a social base that is looking more and more like the base of the Democratic Party in class terms. Hmm. That is the base of the Democratic Party 20 years ago. What we're seeing from registration data and from turnouts is that while the Democrats are still very well positioned within the working class, big chunks of the white working class are migrating over from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Secondly, the Republican Party's geographical base is overwhelmingly now in the poorest districts of the country. Partly because it's more and more a party of the agrarian states, the agricultural states, and rural districts, which are very poor districts. But also outside that, in the exurbs and the suburbs, the Republicans are where downwardly mobile members of the working class are going. Still, mostly the white, but it's surprising, it's really kind of shocking how much of a, a presence Trump is generating amongst Latino and black communities. Hmm. Not so much the working class among the blacks. Latino working class is more, uh, I think, inclined to be favorable towards him. But there's even the younger blacks, younger black working class members are also quite open to Trump right now. Well, that is a shift that uh, is, is, is quite novel. And it's roiling the party because that's becoming the social base of kind of populist element within the party. That is an element that is, whose rhetoric is anti-corporate, anti-elite, pro-distribution, even some degree of uh, industrial policy and protectionism, which you didn't see in the Republicans for the longest time, mm -hmm. right? So it's a party in flux. All right, the Democrats are much more predictable right now. They are really very well positioned for the near future to be the party of the top 20% of the population of the professional managerial class and the American capitalist class. And they know it, and they're doing everything they can to consolidate their grip on that part of the electorate, which ironically means, and this is a longer conversation, something like a Bernie phenomenon in 2024, 2028 is going to face an even greater challenge because it has to go through the primaries of the Democratic Party. And that party, the voting base of that party once you get beyond a very thin layer of social democratic objectives, the base will not support a Bernie-style social democratic uh, movement. And Super Tuesday makes it even harder because you have to go through the southern states and the Congressional Black Caucus right now is so resolutely neoliberal and uh, right-wing inside the party, it, it presents the Democrats with this very tough bulwark against progressive mm -hmm candidates, right? Hmm. So that one party is in, I think, flux. The other is stabilizing. And, you know, you, you see how Biden has moved since the end of the primaries. He's so, so rapidly marginalized the left, not, not as much as, as fast as Hillary did. But of course, the left is more consolidated now than in Hillary's time inside the party. And he has, he's had to contend with it. And 
every overture he's made has been to the right, much like Clinton did. Hmm. It's a signal to the establishment that, look, you don't have to worry about us. You can rely on us. We're going to take care of the left for you, right? So th that's where the two parties are. Now, what that means is that um, if, and any electoral strategy in the near future for organizations like the DSA, insofar as that electoral strategy is using the Democratic ballot line locally, the higher up you go in the party, the more fierce the resistance is going to mm. be because mm. uh, it's really consolidating very fast. And that, the, the enormous bounty that the Sanders national presidential campaigns gave to the left, that bounty is going to be more constrained in the future because the party is losing that chunk of its electoral base, the working class, which would have been favorably disposed towards a left-wing democratic candidate in the primaries. Hmm. It's not like it's disappeared, but there's no doubt about this. Everyone is noticing it. The populist element within the Republican party is now being fed and nourished by the defection of significant chunks of the white working, working class from the Democrats to the Republicans. That, that's, just a, that's a very difficult situation for the left inside the Democrats, Democratic Party now to have to contend with. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Now, what about Trump's uniqueness as a candidate? Well, I mean, uh, the, uh, he is the reason. The, the evidence that he's unique is that the American establishment at this moment right now, I, I don't know of any significant chunk of the American ruling class or the political establishment that wants a second Trump term. Yeah. They want to see him gone. And that's it's partly because it's not that they see him as a populist threat anymore. He <laughs> allayed those fears the moment he got into office. The moment he got into office, he went from populism to being a garden variety neoliberal when it comes to economic policies. Right? Yeah. What they what they object in him is that he's systematically dismantling the state. That's right. He cannot be trusted as an overseer of macroeconomic policy, of American geopolitical interests. It's not even clear that he has any vision of his own. That he, he, he is so capricious. He's so self-absorbed. He's so incapable uh, of setting an agenda for himself that the class looks at him and says, we don't know what this guy's about. We don't know how to deal with him. It's like dealing with a child. So any part of the state that tries to run business as usual from a bourgeois standpoint, if it agrees with him, he'll leave it alone. If it clashes with him in any way, he uses every instrument he has at his disposal to dismantle that part of the state, to undermine it. And this is the second point. For the left, look, it, there, there's a positive element to um, the public turning against the state. It, the state's loss of legitimacy, because it's a, it's a neoliberal state, it's been vicious towards working people for now over 40 years. When we see public confidence in the government declining, some of, some of that is a opening for the left to come in and start building something. Because it means ideologically, the right and the neoliberal project is dying. Mm. And you have some way of building. Okay, But there's a downside to that too. That decline of confidence in the government and in elites has been underway now for at least a quarter century. What's happening with Trump, I think, is something different. It's not just that they're losing confidence 
in the party, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or something. It's that the very idea of reliable public institutions, of public institutions having a role to play in the life of working people is now losing traction. And what it's doing is it's intensifying this notion that everybody is now, um, uh, what's the word, that it's a war of all against all. Hmm. That you're on your own, you can't rely on, the, on public institutions, anything that they say to you is uh, a lie, all this sort of stuff. And that is crippling for a socialist project. It's true that you need to have a uh, skepticism towards bourgeois institutions, but not towards public institutions. And what this neoliberalism is doing, and Trump's particular kind of barbarism is doing, is that it's turning a skepticism towards government into a skepticism towards the community, towards public institutions, towards cooperation. And that's simply a taking neoliberal ideology and putting it on steroids. It, that the left cannot survive in that in that sort of situation because what it's going to turn what it's doing is and this is my next point when you take away from workers faith in public institutions all that's left to them is kin neighborhood ethnicity these sorts of things and what the the kinds of um, race hatred and ethnic hatred we're seeing in the public domain right now is something we haven't seen in a very long time. Trump's presidency ha has normalized and is in the process of normalizing forms of prejudice, forms of tribalism that it took decades to overturn. And he's normalizing it again. He's, he's giving elements of the public that had sort of gone into hiding, he's giving them breathing space that we haven't seen before. And what that does is, all of this, it does two things. First of all, it's making us have to fight battles that should not have to be fought anymore. Yeah. That it's making us have to take up basic issues of, of civil rights, of democratic rights, of norms of comportment amongst people that, you know, the, the gains of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement had enabled us to move beyond and it's now bringing those back again. And it's a dramatic decline, not just in what academics like to call public culture, but in the civilizational advance that the working class had brought to bourgeois society. It, it's forcing, it, it's um, evacuating all those changes now. And that's, for us, that is a crippling change in the political culture. However bad a Biden presidency will be, and we'll, we can talk about how bad it will be, it will be bad. It won't rely on this. Trump's, it, it's a kind of brown shirt culture. I, I don't want to play up the fascist card because that's just not on the agenda. Yeah. But Trump's, um, the, the alacrity with which he uses thuggery and bullying and uh, ethnic and racial hatred is it's just destructive for the left. And so from, a, from just from a working class perspective, um, there's something different about this dude when you compare it to other neoliberals. The final, I would say, reason, the final thing, reason that I, I think the left will benefit from Trump's departure is that because he's, he's so uniquely destructive and everyone sees it, um, it's taken, it's, it's changed 
what it means to be a progressive. I shouldn't say changed, but it's made it a lot harder. Um, it's, it's forcing socialists to fight alongside people who are their class enemies to get rid of this guy. So Democrats and members of the Democratic Party, supporters of the Democratic Party, are now progressives. They, they're, they're called the resistance, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Hashtag resistance, right? Um, part of politics is, is you, you, you want the right enemy. And the ruling class will take care of Trump. They're not going to let him get very far. And they've already made that clear. For socialists, what you want is to be fighting against the more, the, the softer, the, the, the good cop inside the establishment, which is the Dems. You don't want to constantly have to separate yourself out from the Democratic Party because the other guy is so much worse. What you ideally want is you want Biden, you want Kamala Harris. I've been hoping for an all black and brown cabinet. That's what I'd like to see. Hmm. I'd like to see Biden come in and have the full gamut of the cosmopolitan political establishment on his side because it's so much it presents such a better target to educate people into the realities of class politics. When you take an outlier like Trump, it's um, this Trump derangement syndrome derails everything else. Hmm. So I'm looking forward to an era when it's Biden, Harris, and Cory Booker, all these people, uh, Elizabeth Warren, somewhere in the background, whispering in their ear. Yeah, it makes the alignments a lot clearer than in this situation. And, you know, it's, it, it looks like it'll take a something like a miracle for Trump to pull this out. I mean, I, I suppose it could still happen. But what it, the next four years are going to be a very different time for the left, because it's remember Trump and Sanders came in at the same time. We will now be in a situation where both are gone and we'll see if the left can survive a uh, moment without Sanders being this galvanizing figure for everybody and without Trump being the easy target that he's been. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, um, uh, so yeah, there was a lot there and, and you're right that, you know, uh, a whole separate conversation perhaps after the election um, uh, is, is warranted um, uh you know, one one of the things that I'll I'll just say generally is that um, uh, you know we are good at paying attention to differences among uh, Democrats. You know, who I guess you could call them the near enemy, and um, uh, maybe a little less tuned to the differences among Republicans. But but I but I think you're absolutely right that the you, you know one one stark difference right now is that Trump is advocating for a uh, a big stimulus and actually he did that you know at the beginning of the pandemic as well and that's one of the things that's causing the republican party to pull away um and you know saying very explicitly that uh, that they can't go along with uh, you know something that basically goes against their grain um uh and uh uh, and it does, it does, that kind of thing does make him a little more of a populist uh, kind of character, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of telling them to, to sign the biggest stimulus that they can, they can procure. Um, 
Yeah, it's a desperate uh, gamble, yeah. uh, a gambit on his part, but um, McConnell's not biting. No. The, no. <laughs> the fact is, um, the, the party has written him off. Uh, you can tell from the actions that they're pretty certain he's going to lose, and what they're trying to do now is distance themselves from him. Yeah. The other thing is, um, McConnell knows that a $2 trillion package is going to be a stimulant to the economy. And what they're trying to do is set up, set it up so that Biden comes in in the midst of a recession. They're already looking at 2022, and um, they want the the first 10 to 12 to 18 months to be really difficult for him economically. Hmm. But they're not going to give Trump a lifeline, which they think is useless, and in exchange also give uh, Biden uh, some sort of breathing room when he comes in. Hmm. Hmm. Um, all right. Um, well, that was that was pretty comprehensive, and I, you know. Uh, Perhaps we should have touched on uh, the the other set of issues. So you know what? I, let's um, let's give you a chance to uh, to sort of you know maybe link uh, your observations on Trump's appeal to uh, to the the working class. You know the anti-establishment populist angle. Um, can you link that to your? Uh, I know you've been working on this book about uh, the cultural turn, um, uh, you know, away from uh, from class. And um, uh, so maybe you can sort of tell us about that argument and, and about the book and how you would relate that to, to what we are seeing now. Um, yeah, the, the book is um, it's kind of an academic thing. Uh, it, it, what, what it's trying to do is for, for those, you know, if, if there's any listeners who are um, around universities and all that, the, the Marxists always had this view of class, which is that it's rooted in people's material realities. And class politics is fundamentally about people's interests. And the reason you promote the working class is that aside from being strategically located within the economy, it also has an objective interest in... Um, lining up against capital. It's not simply morally driven the way elements of the, mi the middle class are, but it, for its own basic survival needs, it has to confront capital. That, that was an objective reality. Mm -hmm. And the supposition amongst the earlier generations of Marxists, from Marx on down to Lenin and Trotsky and Luxembourg, was that the realities of capitalism would drive workers to come together, to band together, to struggle in collective organizations like unions and eventually overthrow capitalism. The point was that the hard realities of capitalism would kind of inevitably push workers down this path of collective resistance, collective organization, et cetera. And for a while, it seemed like that was in fact happening from you know, the 1905 revolution into the 1920s, probably even you could say up to the Spanish Civil War, you, this was an era of revolutionary working class uprisings. And it certainly seemed like there was a kind of a, a ineluctability to it, that there was some kind of inevitability to, to the, the laws of capitalism leading workers to overthrow it. But it ended. And by the 50s, you entered the era of consolidation for capital. And in that time, during the 50s and 60s, Marxists and Marxist intellectuals started to ask, well, why did this happen? Why didn't the working class come together? Something is wrong with the theory. How did it not predict this? How could it not 
at least countenance this possibility. And the answer they say was they said was in the fact that the theory had ignored culture. Hmm. That it assumed that the hard realities of capitalism would force workers together. But it overlooked the fact that workers don't look at the hard realities as a naked truth. They always look at reality through the prism of their ideology, of the cultures that they inhabit. And it was this, this uh, sidestepping of culture, this basic ignoring of it, that crippled the Marxist left. And out of this was born something called the cultural turn, where over time, it became a basically kind of a common sense of left intellectuals that if you really want to understand the world, you got to look at it through culture. Because culture is that, that intervening point, that screen that gets in between us and the world. Now, once you, you draw that screen in between you and the world, what happens in this, in this intellectual trend is that screen becomes the creator of the world rather than simply being something that mediates your access to the world. Hmm. By the 80s and 90s, you had a really kind of a sharp turn and development amongst leftist and Marxist or post-Marxist theorists where it came to the point where the working class didn't just understand its world through the prism of culture. Culture created that world. And class itself was seen not as an objective reality, not as something rooted in ownership of the means of production and the labor process and all that. Class itself became something that was generated by discourse. Hmm. So, and you, you see this in, you know, Stuart Hall, in the Althusserians, in the, the turn that social history took on. So what, my, what I'm trying to do in the book is to uh, give a response to all this. Um, I think a lot of people understand that the obsession with culture ended up sort of evacuating politics from critical analysis. And any of us who lived through the 90s, the, the knots know this, how absurdly detached class analysis became from reality. How, how the word radicalism just came to mean somebody who doodles around with fancy words and watches movies and critiques art shows mm -hmm. rather than somebody who tries to understand the laws of capitalism. Because that's where the hidden secret, the hidden secret is in art galleries and in movie halls, things like that. You, you lived through it and you saw how absurd it was. But at the same time, there's a real power to the arguments that it was all based on. There, there's something very powerful about the idea that we have to interpret the world around us. It, it isn't just given to us in a kind of a, as a picture. We have to mobilize discourse and ideas to make sense of it. So what I try to do in the book is try to show that you can accept that premise that we have to interpret the world around us, but you can still defend the notion that the world imposes its will on us. The world imposes its structure on us and we have to adjust to it. And it's not our discourse and not our symbols and our codes that create the classes, the exploitation, all that, but rather the classes are a reality that shape the culture around us. So that's a very, 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 very compressed way of sure. trying to describe what I'm trying to do is basically I'm trying to rescue class from this whole cultural turn without However, saying that the whole idea of culture as a force in our lives is nonsense. Mm. I'm trying to 
respect the, the fact of culture, but show that the constructivist and idealist conclusions that the cultural turn came to are not warranted, that they're not um, to be, they're, they don't need to be accepted. Hmm. That's why I said it's kind of an academic book in that sense, that it's taking on these arcane arguments, but the objective is very much political, which is to, show, to insist on the reality. It's the kind of thing where if you're not an academic, you go, you know, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> but <laughs> this is the, the fate of academics. Sometimes you have to just make arguments, which um, if you weren't, didn't go through the boot camp and the brainwashing of graduate school, you wouldn't have to contend with. Yeah, so I, I also remember going through the same period <laughs> with the same response. Um, uh, but but I, I actually don't think it's... it's um, even as you stated it, that it's strictly academic. And and so, for example, is there some piece of that, you know, it is it is like you do see, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it's almost commonplace for people to, to say that, uh, well, you know, one of the reasons uh, the Republicans generally, and then perhaps, you know, Trump in particular, uh, are able to appeal to people whose interests they are so obviously, uh, you know, uh, attacking um, is that they're able to appeal to some, you know, broadly speaking, some kind of cultural uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, appeals. I mean, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, sense of, uh, you know, patriotism or, uh, you know, however you want to call it. Um, so, so yeah, so is there is there something we can draw on from the academic side of it to say that, well, this is how, this is how we should deal with, uh, you know, uh, these. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Look, it, all of it can be drawn upon. That is to say, I, I, the only reason I wrote this book is I think it's, it has tremendous political implications. Uh, the, the arguments from culture, and they played a big role in intellectually crippling the left and making it difficult to uh, generate an agenda and a program uh, because the intellectual culture now views Marxist ideas with such contempt that within the, the groups, within the strata where ideas are discussed today, which is all in the professional managerial class, the, even amongst people who call themselves radical, there's this notion that materialism economic analysis is for um, dummies. Hmm. And the, the real, if you want to understand politics, you go to culture. That's where, and so, and then that leads to this thing where, well, why does, why does the right win? It's because it has the right discourse. It's because it appeals, it has the right symbols. It's, and, you know, this started in the 80s when Thatcher won in England. The answer of, of the British Communist Party rapidly imploding and Stuart Hall and all these people coming out of culture was that they, Thatcher won because she managed the right kind of media campaign, hmm. the right sort of symbols. And that was a disastrously wrong-headed analysis. The same sort of things you see happening in the US today. And I'll tell you two places where it occurs. One is in this notion of, um, of whiteness, that the working class has, is imbued with this cultural fixation on their whiteness. And it's to the point where they even will accept real losses in their livelihood as long as the psychic pleasure of, of their, that's delivered by their racism helps them out. Anybody who has basic respect for working people and their realities would say, really? 
So somebody's sitting at home, they can't put food on the table, they can't send their kids to a hospital, they don't know if they have pensions, but they will give up economic gains in exchange for the psychic benefit of seeing a black or a brown person do badly? Well, that is made attractive when you go, yeah, because this whole notion of economic interest is bullshit anyway. Hmm. What it's all about is how you perceive yourself, how you see yourself. And that's led to this, among socialists, I would say it's, there's some prevalence of this, but among the progressive intelligentsia, it's rampant. Hmm. This idea that um, the working class is so deeply racist in this country that it's a kind of a reactionary force. Now, what a basic respect for people's economic realities, the realities of their situation, the fact that they have real interests leads to a very different line of analysis. It's not that they have so internalized racism and whiteness that they're unable to look beyond it. And that's what explains their shifting towards Trump. And that's what explains their movement towards the right. But instead, it's that this guy's making them some economic promises, promises which the Democrats are unwilling to make. And as a last gasp, they're going to him, not because as a group, as a mass, they see him valuing their whiteness. In fact, as we know, as you know, as most people of this podcast will know, the key districts that voted for Trump had voted for Obama, not once, but twice. Yeah. Well, why? Why did they move to Trump? It's because Obama slapped them once they got once he got into office and said, you get nothing. And right now in the battleground states, those districts, many of them are flipping again towards Biden because they see that Trump lied. Now, this should not be a surprise to a materialist. You should see that the reason they go to this race discourse is because they see it as a as attached to an economic program. And it's not because of the race discourse, but in spite of it that they're going. Focus group after focus group, ethnography after ethnography is showing that in large, in all these cities, what men and women who are working for a living say is, we know he's a racist, we're holding our nose and we're voting for him hmm. because he's the only guy who seems to give us any attention whatsoever. That to a, a materialist and a socialist, that should not be a surprise. But to somebody steeped in culture, yeah, it's called cultural theory, I should say. It's something that they have to be um, schooled on. Hmm. That, that's one implication, political implication of this obsession. Yeah, the second was that this, this idea that some um, Marxist intellectuals were laying out in the 80s and 90s, that neoliberalism was successful because it had gained the consent of the working class, that it, there was a cultural hegemony that it had achieved. I, I think in retrospect, it's pretty clear it never had cultural hegemony, people were inferring a cultural hegemony from the fact that capitalism didn't have a lot of working class resistance, overt forms of resistance. So they said, well, if workers aren't resisting, they must have bought into hmm. the system. Hmm. Okay, but that's easier to make as an inference when you think that culture and discourse is so powerful that even as people are being ground into the dust and they're losing their jobs, their, their unions are taken away, they're losing their pensions, the welfare state's being taken from them. Even then, the, the hold of culture is so powerful that they go, yeah, that's fine, that's cool. Hmm. As long as you give us the right movies, as long as you give us the right television shows, we're fine with all this. In retrospect, it's clear it wasn't consent, it was resignation. They saw they had no alternative because they had no means of fighting back. And that's a materialist counterpoint to the overemphasis 
on culture and ideology. And there's a tremendous political implication of this. If you think that the reason neoliberalism is stable is because working people are resigned to it because they see no alternative, because they can't fight back, it, it, it means that they are much, much more open to your organizing efforts than if you feel that the reason neoliberalism is stable is because everybody has given it their vote, their consent. Hmm. Now, it, for organizers, it's a completely different landscape when it comes to trying to bring them together. So one of the things I try to do in the book is make a distinction between stability through resignation and stability through consent. And um, the resignation is linked to people's material circumstances in a way that consent may not be. So there's very direct, as you were saying, political implications of all this. They're mediated through a lot of gobbledygook and, and tribalism <laughs> and kind of stuff. Uh, but you know that's what we do. Uh, and those of us who yeah, are professors, yeah. you have to wade. Some of this work is arcane. That I wrote the post-colonial theory book, not because I think post-colonial theory is worth my time, but because a lot of all of these theories have reinvented radicalism. They've made radicalism detached from the realities of class politics and of the many, many, many tasks in front of us as Marxists. One of the tasks on the intellectual front is to revive the idea, which was taken for granted for so long, that to be a radical is to be an anti-capitalist. Radicalism means anti-capitalism. Today it doesn't, because in the 40-year-long battle that the intelligentsia, the aging new left, waged against its Marxist past, item number one was to evacuate class from radicalism. And if you're going to bring class back, it's got to start with materialism. Without the materialism, you lose all hold on class politics. Um, well, we should tell people that this is an and this is slightly different from the um, from the typical sort of uh, uh, you know uh, conversation about a book on a podcast because the book is in fact about a year f away from coming out, right? Something like that. About uh, nine months or so. Yeah, oh, okay. it'll be um, right nine in the fall is I think when it'll be. So there'll be that book in the fall, and then I have a popular book, perhaps more closely aligned with your um, listeners' interests, uh, yeah. which will come out three months later. So it'll, both books will be coming out in about four months of each other. Oh, fabulous. And the most popular book will be on a kind of a, it'll take these pamphlets that um, I put out two years ago, update them and add a couple of chapters. And that'll be for um, more for the kind of um, cadre and organizers uh, on the left, and this theory book will be for the people who have to brush up against academics uh, in their daily <laughs> lives. <laughs> God help them. If you're like most listeners of this podcast, you're unlikely to take issue with Chibber's insistence on the class dynamics behind our current politics uh, and uh, culture, broadly speaking. You may be less certain, however, about the relative weight of class and racial dynamics in particular phenomena, for example, the votes for Trump in some parts of the country. There is considerable research documenting the role of racism in US political outcomes, and there's a reason American politicians have been so effective at using racial hostility to divide people. I doubt Chibber would disagree 
that an uncompromising and explicit anti-racist stance remains vital for socialists in the U.S. I found Chibber's analysis of the changes within the Republican and Democratic parties especially compelling. If indeed the Democratic Party continues to abandon working class voters without college degrees, the Republican Party may continue moving to accommodate them. Regardless of the degree to which democratic socialists in the U.S. choose to engage in electoral politics, we need to be attuned to these shifts within and between the two parties. I am not convinced that a democratic administration would return to neoliberalism as usual. At minimum, it will have to face a newly energized left progressive socialist movement determined to push it to the left, and the outcome of the struggle is not predetermined. Later this week, I continue my inquiry into the dynamics of the two parties with Cedric de Leon, a labor movement veteran and sociologist. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>